we welcome you to the Tabernacle Podcast, brought to you by the Tabernacle Baptist Church in Hickory, North Carolina. If you'd like to learn more about Tabernacle, you can visit our website, tabernaclebaptistchurch.com. You can find other sermons like this one on Apple Podcast, YouTube, and Sermon Audio. It is our prayer that God has used this message to be an encouragement to your heart. We've been in the book of, of 2 Samuel in recent weeks and the life and ministry of David. David served his generation. We'll visit 2 Samuel again this morning. Uh, but as we've been examining the life of David the king, we understand that the life of David the king speaks of a greater king who at that time was on his way, and to us he has come and uh, suffered and bled and died for our sins, and he is ascended into the presence of God in heaven, and we await his second coming. He will establish his rule on this earth. He will occupy the throne of David. And unlike David, he will not falter and will not fail. And so we're reminded of that this morning and we tie these themes together in some ways. We think about Christmas, the coming of the child. You shall call his name Emmanuel, as the group just sang. And who is this child that we acknowledge this time of year especially to celebrate his birth? Who is he? Well, we're introduced to him in Matthew chapter number 1. And uh, we'll read a few select verses in Matthew chapter 1. Beginning in verse 1, and if you'll follow along, I'll, I'll guide you as far as where we're headed. But I want you to notice this phrase in, in verse number one, the book of the generation of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham beget Isaac, and Isaac beget Jacob, and Jacob beget Judas and his brethren. We move to verse, uh, well, let's look at verse three. And Judas beget Perez and Zerah of Tamar. Now let's look at verse 5. And Solomon beget Boaz of Rahab, and Boaz beget Obed of Ruth, and Obed beget Jesse, verse 6. And Jesse beget David the king, and David the king beget Solomon of her that had been the wife of Urias. Then we go to verse 11. And Josias beget Jeconias and his brethren about the time they were carried away to Babylon. And after they were brought to Babylon, Jeconias beget Selethiel. And then you read a, a list of names from there forward. Verse 16, we come there, and Jacob beget Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom was born Jesus, who is called Christ. So all the generations from Abraham to David are 14 generations, and from David under the carrying away into Babylon are 14 generations, and from the carrying away into Babylon unto Christ are 14 generations. Now, there's some interesting things to note about this genealogy of the Lord Jesus Christ that is presented to us here in Matthew. Uh, we'll just pause and note some of the people that are mentioned, of course. It begins with uh, the son of David. That ties the Lord Jesus to the king. 
the king whose life we've been studying. And then the son of Abraham, the father of the nation of Israel, the father of the faithful. And then the lineage is given, beginning with Abraham. And we note in verse 2 that this lineage goes from Abraham to Isaac, then to Jacob, and then to Judah. Judah was one of the 12 sons of Jacob. And in Genesis 49, uh, when Jacob died, he gave a prophecy to his sons that the scepter would not depart from Judah, that it would be through the tribe of Judah that the Messiah would ultimately come. We know that that would proceed forward into the life of David and the promise would be given to David in 2 Samuel chapter number 7. We'll go there in just a moment. But we know some interesting people who are involved in this genealogy. And Judas beget Perez and Zerah of Tamar. We know the story of Tamar. Perhaps you have not heard of her. But Tamar was a woman who had a very difficult life. She was married to two men who uh, were vile and wicked men. And she was promised to be the wife of another, but yet... Her father-in-law, who was Judah, did not fulfill his promise. And so she played the role of a prostitute. When that was revealed, Judah was ready to condemn her to death until it was revealed who it was that was with her. And unknowingly, he had gone into her himself. It's really a, a dark story and a tragic story, but... We find that in the midst of all of this tragedy and darkness, we find the light of the grace of God. That one such as Tamar, and in fact, one such as Judah, would be included in the lineage of our Lord. Then in verse number five, we read that Boaz beget Obad of Ruth. Ruth was a Moabitess, she was of a cursed nation, but found grace in the eyes of God and received a place in the nation of God. Also in verse 5, we see that Solomon beget Boaz of Rahab. Rahab was a harlot uh, living in the city of Jericho. But she put her faith in God and received a place in the lineage of the Lord. Then we come to verse 6, and we find that Jesse beget David the king, and David the king beget Solomon of her that had been the wife of Urias. We know what happened there? David committed adultery with Bathsheba. I think it's interesting for us just to pause and note this, that the lineage, the heritage of the Son of God was filled with people who would not have been recommended by anybody in this world. People that maybe others would have turned their noses up at and snarled about and whispered about. And by the way, we're those people too. You say, I, I can't believe that God would allow such scandalous things to happen. Well, think of all the scandal of our sin and the fact that he loves us in spite of our sin and he has chosen us and he has given us an heritage in him and he has included us in this book of the generation of Jesus Christ if we have received him as Savior. I think that, that, that merits our, our notice this morning. May we pause and thank God that he included us. 
Well, we note this phrase again in verse number one, the book of the generation of Jesus Christ. That's the title of the message this morning. If you're taking notes and writing things down, I hope you are, by the way, the book of the generation of Jesus Christ. Now, Matthew in his gospel record uh, introduces us to the Lord Jesus Christ and his readers, his target audience were the Jews. Now, all of us benefit from reading this gospel. There are four gospel records, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. All four of them give us a picture, a portrait of the Lord Jesus Christ from different perspectives. In Matthew, we see the Lord Jesus as the Messiah, the King, the rightful King of Israel, the Son of God, portrayed here for us as the King of Israel, the Son of David. That would have been an important thing uh, for the Jews to have considered, Son of Abraham. And thus Matthew shows him as the rightful king. Luke in chapter 3 of Luke, verses 23 through 38, also provides us with a genealogy of the Lord Jesus Christ. His, gene his genealogy proceeds backward from Christ through the lineage of Mary, the mother of the Lord Jesus, and traces her this, her, her, her forefathers backward to David. And so what we conclude, what we learn by looking and comparing these two genealogies is that the Lord Jesus Christ was the son of David on his father's side, at least not his natural father, his adopted father, Joseph, was the son of David. That's why he went to Bethlehem to be taxed. He was of the house of David. And we find that he, as the son of Joseph, was the rightful heir to the throne of Israel. But we also find that through his mother's side of the family, she also was a blood descendant of the king, King David. And so there can be no argument against Jesus' worthiness and qualifications to sit upon the throne. He is the Messiah. He is the king. That would have been something very important for the Jews to have known as they consider him. And this was something that Matthew wanted his readers to know. We also know that John gives us a gospel record, and in his gospel record, John includes no genealogy. He, he doesn't trace things from Adam to Abraham to David and then to Christ. No, John just simply begins in the beginning. In John chapter 1, he says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by him, and without him was not anything made that was made. You see, Jesus Christ did not come into existence 2,000 years ago. No, he simply became a man. He was incarnated we speak of the incarnation of Christ. He became a man, but he became a man without ceasing to be God because before he became a man 2,000 years ago, he was in the beginning with God. He is God, equal with the Father, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. And we learn what Christ was doing in the beginning. The Bible said that all things were made by him. He's the creator. And without him was not anything made that was made. So who is this babe? What does this 
book of the generation of Jesus Christ teach us? It teaches us that this babe that we celebrate his birth at this time of the year is the son of God. He is God, equal with the Father, the creator who spoke this universe into existence, who formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. That's who he is. And then he's the one who came and became a man without ceasing to be God 2,000 years ago in order to redeem us from our sin. He lived a perfect, sinless, righteous life. He went to the cross and made the payment for our sin. He was buried in a tomb, and on the third day, he rose again to die no more, victorious and triumphant over death and hell and the grave. And 40 days later, he ascended into the presence of the Father, where he ever liveth to make intercession for you and I. And thanks be unto God, he's coming again. He is our hope. He's our redeemer. And so we note the book of the generation of Jesus Christ. And I invite you to, to, to write some things down. And we're going to go through our Bible and look at some different passages this morning. And let's go back to the beginning in Genesis chapter 3, would you? Genesis chapter number 3. And here we find Adam and Eve in the garden in Genesis chapter 3. And God had given them a commandment that they could not eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And Satan came to Eve and tempted her concerning this fruit. He deceived her and she took the fruit. Notice in Genesis chapter 3 and verse 6, And when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was pleasant to the eyes and a tree to be desired to make one wise, she took of the fruit thereof and did eat and gave also unto her husband with her and he did eat. And the eyes of them both were open and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves aprons. And they heard the voice of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God amongst the trees of the garden. And the Lord God called unto Adam and said unto him, Where art thou? And he said, I heard thy voice in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked. And I hid myself. And he said, Who told thee that thou wast naked? Hast thou eaten of the tree? Where have I commanded thee that thou shouldest not eat? And the man said, The woman whom thou gavest to be, uh, to be with me, she gave me of the tree, and I did eat. And the Lord God said unto the woman, What is this that thou hast done? And the woman said, The serpent beguiled me, and I did eat. And the Lord God said unto the serpent, Because thou hast done this, thou art cursed above all cattle and above every beast of the field. Upon thy belly shalt thou go, and dust shalt thou eat all the days of thy life. And I will put enmity between thee and the woman, and between thy seed and her seed. It shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. And God made a perfect place for them to live. He put them in the garden and he gave them just one prohibition. Don't eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And though he had given all things to them and they had perfect fellowship and communion with him, they decided to rebel against him and sin against him and they took the fruit that was prohibited. And as the Lord said, in that day ye shall surely die. And that day they did die. They died immediately in their spirit. Ultimately, they would die in their body. But something changed that day. The life of God, the, the spirit of God that was in them departed from them that day. They sinned. They were in rebellion against God. That's why the Bible tells us in verse 7, 
Their eyes were open. They knew that they were naked. There was no covering for them. When they heard God's voice coming to them, the voice that they had communed with all that time before, when they heard God come to them, they hid from him. They sewed fig leaves together to try to make aprons and and hide their nakedness from God, but they could not hide their sin from God. And so the Lord asked them, how'd this happen? He knew the answer, by the way. He just wanted to hear the confession. The serpent beguiled them. And then the Lord pronounced a curse on the serpent in verse 14. But then in verse 15, he says this, And I will put enmity between thee and the woman and between thy seed and her seed. It shall bruise thy head and thou shalt bruise his heel. There was an adversarial relationship that day created between the serpent and the man. If you see a snake, typically, how do you respond? Well, most people don't go up and pet it. They run from it. They run from it. There is enmity. That, that, that reminds us of our adversarial relationship with the devil. He is a, our adversary, 1 Peter 5, 8. And as a roaring lion, he walks about seeking whom he may devour. He wants to get a hold of you and I. And the Lord said in verse 15, this enmity will be between thee and the woman and between thy seed and her seed. It shall bruise thy head and thou shalt bruise his heel. What is he speaking of here? He's speaking of the seed of the woman. He is speaking of a son who would come from the race of Adam who would, yes, suffer the bite of the serpent on his heel, but who would in turn crush the head of the serpent. And I'm glad that the Lord Jesus, he suffered the bite of the serpent for me. He took the curse of my sin. Galatians 3.13 says Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. What is the purpose of the law? Well, Paul taught us this. He said the purpose of the law is to serve as our schoolmaster, to teach us, to be as, serve as our schoolmaster, to bring us to Christ, to, to help us see that we're sinners. You see, you cannot become a believer. You cannot become a Christian. You cannot have your sin forgiven until you first admit that you're a sinner. And the law is the righteous standard of a holy God. And God gives us his law to point us to the fact that we cannot fulfill it. To show us who we are. We are sinners and we are condemned and we are under a curse and condemned. But having become a curse for us, the Bible says this is what Jesus did. He redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us, for it is written, cursed is everyone that hangeth on a tree. Jesus Christ took the curse of my sin and he went to the cross and made the payment for my sin. He became a curse for me. He bore my curse, he bore my sin, and he suffered my death. 2 Corinthians 5, 21 For he hath made him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. When the Lord Jesus Christ went to the garden of Gethsemane, he drank the cup of my sin. He said, if it be thy will, let this cup pass from me. But nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. The cup was the cup of our sin. The Bible says in Isaiah 53 and verse 6, that the Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. That cup contained our iniquity. 
our sin. He was made sin for us. He bore the curse for us. Yes, the serpent bruised his heel. He went to the cross and suffered and bled and died. He was buried in the tomb, but on the third day he rose again and he crushed the serpent's head. The Bible tells us that all that Adam lost in the garden was restored to us in Christ. 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 21. The Bible said, For since by man came death, by man came also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. You see, if I'm in the book of the generation of Adam, I have death. I have sin. I have suffering. I have sorrow. But if I'm in the book of the generation of Jesus Christ, he has suffered my sin, my sorrow, and my death, and I have in exchanged, received forgiveness and freedom and life everlasting. What a glorious thing it is to know that Jesus is the seed of the woman and that he speaks of the redemption of Christ. In the Old Testament, when the children of Israel were in the wilderness and they had provoked God and they had murmured against the Lord, God sent fiery serpents into the camp. Those fiery serpents bit the people and the poison, the venom would eventually kill them. It was a dreadful, painful death and God gave them a way of deliverance for those who'd been bitten. He commanded Moses to craft a brazen serpent and lift it up on a pole. And the commandment went, if you have been bitten, if you've been snared by the serpent, if you'll just simply look to the brazen serpent, you'll be delivered from its venom. There were people in the camp who would not look, and they died. And there were people in the camp who would look, and they were delivered. You see, Christ bore our sin. He became a curse for us. He was lifted up on the cross of Calvary. And if you will look to him by faith, you'll be delivered from the sting of the serpent's bite. The greatest thing you can do at Christmas is bow to the Savior, the one who came to redeem you from a world of sin and suffering. Put your faith in him. Look to him. Confess him, and he will save you. The seed of the woman speaks of the redemption of Christ. But then we go to Genesis chapter number 12, if you'll go there with me, and we find a man named Abraham. Genesis chapter number 12 and verse number 1, God speaks to a man who lived in a place called Ur of the Chaldees whose name was Abraham. In verse 1, the Bible said, Now the Lord had said unto Abram, Get thee out of thy country and from thy kindred and from thy father's house unto a land that I will show thee. And I will make of thee a great nation, and I will bless thee and make thy name great, and thou shalt be a blessing. I will bless them that bless thee and curse him that curseth thee, and in thee shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Would you write a second thought down as we consider these three verses? Would you write this down? Number two, the seed of Abraham speaks of the revelation of Christ. The seed of Abraham speaks of the revelation of Christ. 
When Abraham was called out of Ur of the Chaldees, he was a part of a nation that was a heathen nation. In fact, all nations of the earth at that point had descended down into heathenism and paganism and idolatry. It was God's intention to make himself known to all the nations of the earth. He wanted everybody to know him. By the way, God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Jesus Christ tasted death for every man. God has a global mission on this earth. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. God's love transcends borders and ethnicities. God loves all people. And God chose Abraham, not because Abraham was particularly worthy. He chose Abraham because he wanted to use Abraham to declare his message to a lost and dying world. So he said to Abraham, get thee out of thy country, leave this place, and go to a land that I will show you. That was the land of Canaan, verse 2. And I will make of thee a great nation, and I will bless thee and make thy name great, and thou shalt be a blessing. I will bless them that bless thee and curse him that curseth thee, and in thee shall all the families of the earth be blessed. God makes a promise to Abraham. I'm going to give you a family, Abraham. Now, he had a wife. By the way, Abraham was 75. Sarah was 65 when God spoke to him. They had no child. God said, I want you to go to a land I'm going to tell you about. It was retirement time, okay? They might have been looking at condos in Florida. I doubt it, but it's possible. And he said, no, I've got a mission for you. You're going to have a son. Wait a minute. I'm 75. She's 65. We're going to do what? You're going to have a son. By the way, it would be 25 years before that son came. He would be 100. She would be 90. God specializes in doing the impossible. And he did the impossible because he wanted to reveal his power. Because when people saw Isaac and then they saw Jacob and then they saw Jacob's 12 sons and how God blessed them, this is what they would know about Abraham's people, that they knew God, that God's presence was among them. And if they wanted to know the true and the living God, they needed to get to know the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And that was the purpose of the nation of Israel, to make God known. And when God delivered the Israelites out of Egypt, man, did he do a mighty thing, didn't he? And then he met with them on Mount Sinai and he shook the mountain and his glory was all about it. And when Moses came down from the mount, he had the law, he had the word of God. Nobody could doubt its authenticity. You see, the purpose of the nation of Israel, the purpose of Abraham was to make God known. Aren't you glad? Listen, aren't you glad that God didn't leave us here in this cold, dark, deadly world just to fend for ourselves, just to grapple in the darkness? No, he shined upon us the glorious light of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Think of those shepherds in the field on that dark night. What did they see? They saw the light of the glory of God. And the heavens were filled with the angels as they said, glory to God in the highest. And on earth, peace, goodwill toward men. Well, in the same way that God called Abraham to make Christ known, do you know that God has called you and I who know him to make him known as well. 
Peter wrote this in 1 Peter 2, 9. But ye are a chosen generation. He's not writing to the Israelites. He's writing to Christians. Christians who live in different nations, whose skin is different colors, whose cultures are different. He said, ye are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a peculiar people that ye should show forth the praises of him who hath called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Jesus says the son of Abraham speaks to us of the revelation of Christ. Well, then thirdly, we go to 2 Samuel chapter 7. And this is where we meet with David once again. 2 Samuel chapter number 7. And we'll begin reading in verse number 12. We remember the context of this passage. David desired to build a temple for the Lord. And Nathan, who had initially said, do what's in your heart, received a message from the Lord, and now he's going to give this message to David. In 2 Samuel chapter 7 and verse 12, God does something for David that he never expected or could not imagine. Now, we're trying to find out who is this son. Well, we see he's the seed of the woman, and that speaks of redemption, and we see that he is the son of Abraham, and that speaks of revelation. But now, we're going to see that he is the son of David, and that speaks of rule, his rule. Second Samuel chapter 7 and verse 12, And when thy days, this is the voice of the prophet speaking now, the voice of the prophet, the voice of God speaking to David, when thy days be fulfilled, and thou shalt sleep with thy fathers, when, when life is over for you, David, when you're, when you're dead and gone, I will set up thy seed after thee, which shall proceed out of thy bowels, and I will establish his kingdom. Now, this prophecy in its context speaks immediately of Solomon, the son of David. But ultimately, it speaks of one greater than Solomon, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, notice what he will do in verse 13. He shall build a house for God's name. He shall build a house for my name, he says. He's going to build me a house. The house you want to build, David, your son Solomon is going to build. But by the way, the one greater than Solomon is going to build me a better house. Do you know what happened to Solomon's house? It was destroyed. Do you know what happened to the house that Jesus is building? Well, here's what he says. He says, I will build my house, I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Nothing can harm the house that Jesus is building. It is a habitation of God, not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. Do you know who, who makes up that house? You and I do. God who loves us and who, who, who sent his son to die for us and if we've received him as, as savior by faith, then we're a part of the house of God. What a glorious thing. He is building his house. We note something. Secondly, look here in, again in verse 13, the latter part of the verse. And I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Can I tell you that the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ is an eternal kingdom? There's no election every four years. There are no campaigns. There are no debates. There are no, uh, there are no moving movements to the polls or registrations to vote. Jesus, king, his throne, his kingdom is an eternal kingdom. Now, David's kingdom foreshadowed, did it not? It foreshadowed the kingdom of Christ, but the foreshadowing breaks down with David's sin. You remember the people of Israel, they clamored for a man to be their king. They wanted a king to be like all the other nations. 
And they got one. His, his name was uh, Saul. And he had a great beginning, but uh, an abysmal end. And he failed the people greatly. Then David became, became the king, and his kingdom was characterized by justice and judgment. He, he reached out to the entire nation, and everything was going wonderfully well. But in the midst of it, there was still intrigue and violence and hatred and strife. You read of the, the conflict between the men of Israel and the men of Judah and, and the characters of Joab and Abner and men like that. But when King Jesus rules, it'll be forever. And unlike David, who failed in sin, Jesus did not fail us, and he never will. There was no sin in him. He could not sin. He did not sin. He went to the cross and paid the payment for our sin, but there was no sin in him. And his kingdom will not falter. It's an eternal kingdom. We see in verse 14, I will be his father and he shall be my son. We're, we're glad to know the relationship that exists between God the Father and God the Son and that we are one in Christ and in the Father. We continue reading in verse 14. He said, I will chasten him with a rod of men. If he commit iniquity, verse 14, I will chasten him with a rod of men and with the stripes of the children of men. Now we know that Solomon committed iniquity. He fell into immorality and into idolatry. There's no doubt he, he committed iniquity, but we know that Jesus did not commit iniquity, yet Jesus was chastened and bore our stripes for our sakes. You see, this passage speaks of his rule, his rightful place, and all that he did to establish that rule. Verse 16, thine house and thy kingdom shall be established forever before thee. Thy throne shall be established forever. David could not believe that God would allow him to be a part of such a glorious thing. That the Lord Jesus Christ would occupy the throne of David for all eternity. And then he came, as Matthew tells us, and as Luke tells us, the son of the king. He is the rightful king. Satan is the prince of this world, the Bible tells us. And he has many subjects, many subjects today who are bound in captivity and in sin. You don't have to be a subject of the devil. You can be a servant of Christ. You can be a son of God if you'll come to him. The Bible says in John chapter 1 and verse 12, but as many as received him, he's come to you. Are you willing to receive him? At Christmas time, we give gifts. I I can't imagine somebody giving you a gift and you say, no, I don't want that one. I won't take that one. No, I don't want that one. Jesus Christ has offered the gift of eternal life to all people, but there are many who will not receive it. There were many that day in, in the wilderness who decided, no, I don't think I'm going to look up at that serpent. Yeah, but wait a minute, your cousin was bit and he looked at the, he looked at the brazen serpent and he was delivered. Yeah, but I, I just don't believe in all that superstition. I, I just don't believe in all that stuff, so I'm not going to do it. What a foolish thing to reject this gift that Jesus Christ has given us, the gift of eternal life. Well, then finally we see this in Luke chapter 1 and we close here. Not only is he the seed of the woman which speaks of the redemption of Christ. Not only is he 
uh, the seed of Abraham, which speaks of the revelation of Christ. Not only is he the son of David, which speaks of the rule of Christ, but he is the son of God. And this speaks of his righteousness. Luke chapter 1 and verse 34, the angel is speaking to Mary. He's announcing to her that she is going to have a child. And Mary said unto the angel, Luke 1, 34, how shall this be, seeing I know not a man? And the angel answered and said unto her, the Holy Spirit shall come upon thee, and the power of the Most High shall overshadow thee. Wherefore also the holy thing which is begotten of thee shall be called the Son of God. He's God's son. That's who this baby is, the one we sing about, the one that, that, that we celebrate this time of the year. He is the son of God, the holy, righteous son of God who loves you, who came to you to save you and to give you hope and life. So how do we honor Christ at Christmas? How do we honor him? Well, we follow the example and the pattern that has been given us. The, the greatest thing we can do is receive the gift he's provided. He's done everything necessary to save you of your sin and to give you life, to redeem you from this lost world. All you have to do is receive him. Maybe you're here this morning and you've heard about Jesus, but you don't know him. I want you to know that he loves you. And he died for you. He took your sin and your shame and your suffering and died your death for you so you wouldn't have to die and be without God for eternity. So you wouldn't have to go to hell and suffer. And all you have to do is receive that gift by faith. For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. So honor him at Christmas. Received his gift. Then like the wise men, worship him. Worship him. Like the shepherds who went to him, they, they worshiped him. And then as the shepherds left, what did they do? They glorified God. And then they made him known. You who know him have a responsibility to make him known. May God help us to tell our friends and our neighbors and our loved ones, and maybe those that we wouldn't consider to be our friends, but nevertheless, they're in our public lives. We cross paths with them. We have a responsibility to make Christ known. And then live under his rule. It's easy to say Jesus is king. I doubt many people in this room would dispute that publicly. But there's a better way to show it. And that's live in obedience to his commands. Let me ask you a question. Who's in charge in your life today? Is it you? Or is it him? Live in obedience to his rule. Thank you for listening. We pray that God has used his word to speak to you today. If you'd like to learn more about Tabernacle, you can visit us online at tabernaclebaptistchurch.com. There, you'll find additional information about our church, opportunities to partner with us financially, as well as other resources that we hope can be a help to you. May God bless you, and thank you once again for listening.